Thank you. It's really nice to see you um, today. Um, there's some changes in my little bio there. Speaking of time passing, um, I'm right now in my in in the Bronx. Actually, um, I just moved back to New York um, a couple of weeks ago, so I'm in a very new place for me. Uh, very new atmosphere. Um, lots of noise that I'm not used to. Um, even though I grew up here in New York. So um, there's been a little bit of change in my life um, as there has been for a lot of people who are dealing with um, this, this crisis we're in. Um, let's see, I wanted to start today with kind of telling a, a little story of an experience I had. I hope everybody can hear me. Um, if you can't, please say you can't. <laughs> Um, because I'm not, um, my computer is not the best. So um, my apologies if it's sketchy. Um, I want to start today and I go back to this time in my life a lot um, because it was very important for me. Um, as Ian just uh, said, I did spend some time in Japan and for me, that was a very eye-opening experience. Um, I'm still working with some of the stuff that that came up for me in the in those um, in those practice periods. Um, so far from home, and this is kind of a story of this alien meeting another alien in the forest above the temple in, in Japan. Um, also, please excuse me because I'm not used to using my computer screen for my notes, but um, here we go. Yeah, I was walking in the forest above the temple um, um, of the monastery. Um, right above the temple, there were some trails. Um, they were pretty ma well maintained, though they were gravel trails. Uh, and part of them dirt trails, but they were very well maintained. But it had been raining. And as I said, this is in the forest. So in the forest, it doesn't stop raining until it stops, <laughs> the tree, trees stop dripping. So it might as well have just been, you know, standing under a cloud, even though the rain had, had done for the day. And um, just to give you a picture of it, um, it's a heavy, big pine forest. Underneath the trees um, was a shiitake farm. And a shiitake farm, I don't, I don't really know anything about growing mushrooms, but it's sort of this um, pile of, of logs um, with mushrooms growing on them. And apparently they do this in the forest in Japan. So there's a field of those shiitake logs. Um, so on one side, on the other, far further away from me to my, to my left, going down the hill was a stream. And it was just boiling with the rain, swollen with rain and rumbling, boiling down the hill. 
And on the other side of me was a wall, the wall of the mountain um, where the road had been cut in and it was covered and dripping with, with foliage and strange plants that I had no idea what they were. Um, it wasn't exactly an alien atmosphere, but there was enough alien to it for me to know that I was not at home. I felt comfortable there because there was this great beauty of the mountain. The great beauty of, of the mountains of Japan is, is amazing. If you ever have a chance to visit that, those places, don't stay in Tokyo. Tokyo is not Japan. <laughs> so it's, it's beautiful. It was, I was just surrounded with beauty and I was all alone on a mountain. As you can see, I'm an African-American woman. I'm an African-American woman, far, far from home in this situation. Um, and I, I suppose I was feeling a little bit alone and a little bit alien. But, you know, when I was taking a break and walking a mountain, you know, um, as you do when you take a break from um, temple life for a minute, when they give you those short half an hour to an hour breaks, you know, during the day. And so that's what I was using it for. And when I walk around, I, I have a tendency to look at the ground a lot. Um, always watching my feet. Always watching where I step. Um, so... And that's what I was doing when I rolled up on this gigantic purple electric blue worm. It was the most crazy, ridiculous thing I'd ever seen. At first, I thought it was a snake because it was so long, it almost stretched across the, the, the path I was on. And it was so thick, it could have been a snake. Not a big snake, but it was thick enough to be a snake. And it was blue. Nothing in my whole experience, in my mind, said that such a creature was supposed to exist. Okay? Um, and it was so big and the, its skin was... Um, was almost transparent. You could see its insides moving as it, you know, made its way, undulating and writhing through the gravel. Um, and I admit that I was really disgusted and, you know, just freaked out by its appearance. You know, it just stopped me in my tracks and I just stood there and looked at it because it was nothing that I'd ever imagined. The way it moved, that combination of attributes um, didn't seem like it should be, you know. And 
I'm not a violent person. I don't, you know, I don't believe in this, but I can imagine, you know, a child, you know, coming upon something like that. You know, you, you know how we are when we, we don't, we're not um, mature enough to deal with, you know, something that, that, that challenges our ideas. And I can just imagine a child picking up a rock and throwing it at that big, oh my God, thing. You know, that wriggling, ugly beast. Just a little, just a few inches from my toe. Oh my God. But I stood there and watched it. I just looked at it. Standing by the screen, stream, standing in this weird place and being a stranger in this weird place coming upon the true inhabitant of, of this, of this, uh, of this place. A few days ago, um, I saw an advertisement, which as far as I can recall, read something like all lives can't matter until Black Lives Matter. And I took this advertisement to be an answer to the people who insist that the Black Lives Matter, Matter movement and other movements like it are somehow an assault on non-Black lives. And it depresses me no end that we as a people, and by as a people, I mean Americans, after all this time and trauma, are playing these silly word games. Um, it makes me wonder exactly who or what the folks who come back with that all lives matter are talking about. You know, because if all lives matter, does the fact that we exploit the earth to the detriment of other people, their health, their livelihoods, their homes, their cultures, reflect that statement all lives matter? Um, you know, cause they, you know, there are islands out in the Pacific that I read about that are sinking. There are people who actually are leaving places inhabited and, and loved and, and built upon for millennia who now are refugees because their homes their whole, whole swaths of land are disappearing due to climate change. You know, do the lives that matter include the millions of children who for the sake of someone's profit are being fed um, the lives of, of, of these uh, artificially evolved animals pumped full of cancerous chemicals and whatever stuff we don't even know that they don't even have to tell us about, you know, do those lives matter? The lives of those beings that are sacrificed for food and the lives of those beings to whom you're, you're serving um, and selling things that are not healthy for them, things that could possibly kill them for your profit? You know, does it include black men? Who exactly is included in that all? 
an opening happened for me on Blue Worms Mountain those years, all those years ago. There was no danger to me. It was not attacking me. It was a being going about its business, crossing a road. Whatever its perception was, I might not have even been a part of that perception. It probably didn't even know I was there. But all my judgment and all my fears, you see, this fear is, is, is when we are challenged as to, you know, who's in this world with us, you know, somehow we feel like something strange somehow invalidates us. I don't know why. I, that, that doesn't, I mean, maybe that's not the, the true um, way it is, but, you know, I can't think of any reason why that comes up for us when we're not even being attacked and it's just there, you know. I don't know the, 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 that worm's existence. For all I know, that mountain that I'm standing on, that I'm supported by, was built by beings like that. That my existence in that particular moment, standing there, toe to, toe to okay, I guess toe to side, with a gigantic blue worm would not happen if that being was not there. And all the myriad beings behind that wall of foliage and in that stream and among the logs of the, um, the, the, the shiitake farm and in the canopy of trees above me, things I can never see, will never know existed, you know, and if I saw them. So one of the best things about the practice that the Buddha left us is finding that ability to stop and just be there for a minute. And so standing there not knowing, watching this worm go about its business, I got a chance to watch my own heart as well. You know, and that's what this practice is about to me, kind of. And I'm not a scholar, so y'all can jump on this if you want to, but what this practice is about, what Dogen said is that we have to learn to take that backward step that turns your light inwardly to illuminate yourself. You know, um, that basic Fukan Zazengi, the first thing he wrote. Practice is taking that step time and time again and slamming again and again into the reality that the world is not built for me, around me, by me, alone that my story is just that, a story, and that there's a reality that I'm a part of that other beings that are a part of and it would not happen without all of us. I don't know anything about worms, but I have to understand that their existence and my existence and that my every moment is shaped by them whether I'm aware of them or not. 
the strangers to my ignorant eyes had nothing to do with reality. That big blue had every right to be. And in fact, it's imperative that big blue exists. Their lives matter and my life is supported by theirs whether I know it or not. So in the end, because I had to get back to my work in the temple, I stepped over the blue worm and kept going. And let myself be shaped by that encounter, whether I wanted to or not. And make no mistake, I'm not about to go around picking up blue worms, but I can recognize the magnificence of that one life. You know, I try so hard. It's not, I've squashed a bunch of bugs in my life. No, no, no lie here. Um, but there is a need to even look at that, what is in our judgment, that small being, and at least appreciate its place in our, in our world and in our connection in this world. Mm. I think I want to stop and take a different tack because I don't want to sit here and talk all day. But I just want to read a, a short little story from the sutras. And I'm sorry, I didn't write down the name of the sutra. Just to kind of pull myself into this other direction that I want to briefly go to. In a lowly family, I was born poor with next to no food. My work was degrading. I gathered the spoiled, the withered flowers from shrines and threw them away. People found me disgusting, despised me, disparaged me. Lowering my heart, I showed reverence to many. Then I saw the self awakened, arrayed with a squadron of monks the great hero entering the city, supreme of the Magadans. Throwing down my carrying pole, I approached him to do reverence. He, the supreme man, stood still out of sympathy, just for me. After paying homage to the feet of the teacher, I stood to one side and requested the going forth from him. Supreme among all living beings, the compassionate teacher, sympathetic to all the world, said, Come, monk. That was my formal acceptance. That's part of a story from the sutras. And it begins with um, the outcast. There's another story about an outcast who approaches the Buddha, or in fact, um, avoids the Buddha because he is an outcast and feels he's not worthy um, to approach anyone because his society tells him that he is not worthy, that he can't attain anything 
except for that lowly state that somebody who never spoke to him, who knows nothing of his heart or his abilities, assign to him. I sometimes get the feeling that there are folks who believe I shouldn't exist. And I'm not about to compare myself to the magnificent worm, but, you know, like wonderful creature. However, I am accustomed to being perceived as a strange one, regardless of whether or not I'm in my natural environment, which is walking the streets and driving the roads of America just like everybody else, you know. I didn't grow up in some foreign land. I wasn't dropped from the sky. (laughs) Um, I grew up right here, and I know nothing as deeply as this culture and this, this, this country, this world, this society we built together. Um, so, but at the same time, I made, I've spent a life feeling like an alien in my own home. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a woman. I'm an African American woman. And all of these statements seem to have some meaning for somebody somewhere. It's meant for me crossing this road and minding my own business and then finding myself the object of someone's disgust, fear, um, fascination, ignorance, apathy, violence, or just plain ignored, disregarded. One of the reasons why... um, this experiences of practice was is so important to me is that it's allowed me a, those glimpses of freedom that because of my own delusion, my own fears and all of that, I only get to touch every once in a while. Up there on that mountain, in practice, in front of a worm, chanting the sutras, I experienced that freedom. I didn't belong to any race or any nation. I wasn't there in any capacity other than just being, um, just being. In my existence prior to entering that monastery or entering practice anywhere, really, um, I was defined, not even by my own self, you know, but I came to accept those definitions of what it meant to be Black, female, poor, middle class, um, this, that, whatever those labels that all of us get 
plastered onto us by this world. And, you know, I was defined as, you know, I was seen as being the shy person, quiet person. And I was also very um, not strict, <laughs> not really, but I don't know if people ever thought of me as being friendly or not, but I was very closed. Didn't smile a lot. On the mountain, in the practice, I walked those trails and I sang to the top of my lungs. And I knew that people could hear me because on that mountain, you know, it's just kind of, you know, you, you, you do anything loud on the mountain and it just echoes right on down into that valley, right on down to the, you know, temple down there. I would never sing, you know, walking down the streets of Ripa as a child. You know, I didn't have the right to sing. I, or there was that feeling that I didn't have the right to sing to make any kind of noise at all. God forbid that anybody, you know, be disturbed by this being, being herself. But at the top of the mountain, my voice rang out over the, over the temple and I didn't care who heard. I kind of felt like I had um, a, a bird, you know, the birds out on the wires screaming their song have more right to do that than me. There are people who think that, you know, being in the, my being in this practice is some kind of weird thing, you know. Um, uh, as if it's not for me. Really? You're a Buddhist monk? What does that mean? How did you get into that? You know, and I know most of us get at that kind of thing. Because we're so weird. <laughs> Zen is so weird. But that perception that's to um, absorb those perceptions into yourself and take on those beliefs to yourself, you know, it's just like. You know, we all we've all heard about that study that was done uh, in the 50s with um, black children and black dolls and the child crying her heart out because even in her mind, the black doll was bad and all, all even at that age. All of that had already been absorbed. Think of all the mess that we absorb that people place upon us. 
and how we end up defining ourselves, even knowing that it's not true. But on the mountain and in practice, there's this opportunity to know that liberation, to be free of those delusions. You know, that's that the feeling that I had may have lasted only as long as the sound of my voice flowing over the valley. But I saw it. And something in me knows it. And that is what we're all reaching for. It has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with the illusions, you know, that we build based on judgment and fear and call society. It's what the Buddha is guiding us all towards, that freedom to just be and be as part not, you know, just not hard, but be as all, all myriad beings here. Mm. And it's kind of reverberated through my practice ever since, whether I understood that or not. You know, sometimes I think People expect me to talk um, explicitly about George Floyd and other, Brianna and Trayvon and Amadou. And it's not that it's not important to speak their names. However, it makes me wonder exactly what folks will think we've been talking about for 3,000 years. When we chant and vow to save all beings, does that not include black men like George Floyd? Is George standing among the mythical Navas and Bodhisattvas and um, the myriad beings that we picture when we say all sentient beings? and the whales, and the dogs. Is he standing there? When we speak it, do those faces come up for us? Whose face comes up? Does a black man have a place in the divine abodes? Who exactly are we talking about? To be liberated, we have to truly live in the reality that our liberation is the liberation of all, including those in our del- who in our delusion we, we, we see as other. 
whether they're black men or electric blue. The Buddha stepped beyond the illusion of the world, you know, and those judgments that lead to the creation of things like caste, race, class, all of that. And my practice for one moment in a foreign land surrounded by the beauty of a strange world was to see the reality of worms and human beings and all beings and according and to respond in accordance with the Dhamma, with loving kindness, compassion, and wisdom to the best of my ability in that moment. There's all kinds of theories of what enlightenment is, and I'm not going to define that because I don't know what it is. But I know that enlightenment is not for me alone. I'm not sitting on this cushion to eliminate my feelings of connection with people. I'm eliminating when we, when I say that I'm trying to eliminate attachment. What's an attachment to? Attachment that makes it impossible for me to reach out and know and feel my connection to something that is strange to me, that is new to me, to not assign it some strange story from my deluded brain, but to at best reach out and know and be aware and show loving kindness and, and, and true connection to that being, or at least leave it the hell alone. And I think I'm going to stop there because I don't know how much time I was actually supposed to take up. So thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.